preface to Paradise Lost by C.S. Lewis, Chapter 5, The Subject of Primary Epic. The gods made a man called Cassivir, who was so wise you couldn't ask him any questions he hadn't got an answer to. He traveled all over the world teaching men things until he became the guest of two dwarfs. They got him talking and managed to kill him. Then they mixed honey with his blood and made such a mead of it that anybody who drinks the mead becomes a poet. Abridged from something. In the foregoing account of Primary Epic, the reader may have noticed that no mention is made of one characteristic which later critics have sometimes thought essential. Nothing has been said about greatness of subject. No doubt, the epics we have been considering do not deal with comic or idyllic matters, but what of the epic theme as later ages have conceived it, the large national or cosmic subject of super-personal interest? In my opinion, the great subject, the life of Arthur or Jerusalem's fall, was not a mark of primary epic. It enters the epic with Virgil, whose position in this story is central and who has altered the very notion of epic so much so that I believe we are now tempted to read the great subject into primary epic where it does not exist. But since this may be disputed, let us consider Beowulf and the Homeric poems from this point of view. The Odyssey is clearly out of the running. The mere fact that these adventures happened to Odysseus while he was returning from the Trojan War does not make that war the subject of the poem. Our interest is in the fortunes of an individual. If he is a king, he is the king of a very small country, and there is hardly any attempt to make Ithaca seem important, save as the hero's home and estate are important in any story. There is no pretense, indeed no possibility of pretending, that the world or even Greece, would have been much altered if Odysseus had never got home at all. The poem is an adventure story. As far as greatness of subject goes, it is more closer to Tom Jones or Ivanhoe than to the Aeneid or the Jerusalem Libertatat. For the Iliad, a much more plausible case could be made out. It has been treated as an epic about the clash between East and West, and even in ancient times, Isocrates praised Homer for celebrating those who fought against the barbarian. Professor Murray, to some extent, favors this view. It is perhaps presumptuous of me to differ from so great a scholar, and it is certainly disagreeable to differ from one whose books, eagerly read in my teens, are now in my very bones, and whose lectures are still among the most rapturous memories of my undergraduate days. But on this matter, I cannot go with him. Professor Murray asks of the Iliad, Is it not the story of the battle of all Greeks against the barbarian of Asia? All Greeks! The wonderful word rings out again and again in the poems. This is not the impression I get. If we examine the nine places where the index of the Oxford Iliad mentions the word, all Greeks, written here in Greek, as occurring, and four of them occur in a single book, we find that on eight of the occasions it is preceded by a Greek word translated as the champions of Penakeoi. There is no contrast suggested between the all Greeks and the barbarians, only between the all Greeks, the Greeks as a whole, and their own best men. In the ninth passage, Odysseus bids Achilles, even if he hates Agamemnon, to pity the other all Greeks. Here again, the all seems to point to a contrast between the totality of the Greeks and one member of that totality. There is no idea, so far as I can see, of the Greeks united against the barbarians. One begins to wonder whether the first syllable of all Greeks is much more than a metrical convenience. When I survey the poem as a whole, I am even less convinced. The Trojan War is not the subject of the Iliad, it is merely the background to a purely personal story, that of Achilles' wrath, suffering, repentance, 
and killing of Hector. About the fall of Troy, Homer has nothing to say, save incidentally. It has been argued that he does not need to because the fall of Troy was inevitable after Hector's death. But it is, to me, hardly credible that the climax of a story and the fall would be the climax if the siege were the theme, should be left to be inferred. At best, it would be an extreme subtlety, the art of Kipling rather than of Homer. Nor do I find any anti-Trojan feeling in the Iliad. The noblest character is a Trojan, and nearly all the atrocities are on the Greek side. I find even no hint that the Trojans are regarded either for better or for worse as being a different kind of people from the Greeks. No doubt it is possible to suppose an earlier version in which the Trojans were hated, just as it is, is possible to suppose an earlier Beowulf free from all the Christian passages, or a historical Jesus totally different from the figure in the synoptic tradition. But that, I confess, is a mode of research I heartily distrust. I should note that research is in quotations, which is to say sarcastic. Verily. Entities are not to be feigned without necessity, and there is no necessity here. Parallels from other literature suggest that primary epic simply wants a heroic story and cares nothing about a, quote, great national subject. Professor Chadwick, speaking of the Germanic epics, remarks, how singularly free the poems are from anything in the nature of national interest or sentiment. The greatest hero of Icelandic poetry is Burgundian, in Beowulf, Professor Chadwick's statements is very well illustrated. The poem is English. The scene is at first laid in Zealand, and the hero comes from Sweden. Hengist, who ought to have been the Aenus of our epic, if the poet had Virgil's notion of an epic subject, is mentioned only parenthetically. The truth is, the primary epic neither had nor could have a great subject in the later sense. That kind of greatness arises only when some event can be held to affect a profound and more or less permanent change in the history of the world, as the founding of Rome did, or still more, the fall of man. Before any event can have that significance, history must have some degree of pattern, some design, the mere endless up and down, the constant aimless alterations of glory and misery, which make up the terrible phenomenon called a heroic age, admit no such design. No one event is really very much more important than another. No achievement can be permanent. Today we kill and feast. Tomorrow we are killed and our women led away as slaves. Nothing stays put. Nothing has a significance beyond the moment. Heroism and tragedy there are in plenty. Therefore, good stories in plenty. But no large design that brings the world out of the good to ill. The total effect is not a pattern, but a kaleidoscope. If Troy falls, woe to the Trojans, no doubt. But what of it? Zeus has loosed the heads of many cities, and many more will he loosen yet. Heriot has been built nobly, but in the end, what of it? From the very outset, quote, High, horn-gabled, the hall rises, waits the welters of war's surges and the fire. It's foe, Beowulf, verse 81. Much has been talked of the melancholy of Virgil, but an inch beneath the bright surface of Homer we find not melancholy, but despair. Hell was the word Gothi used of it. It is all the more terrible because the poet takes it all for granted, makes no complaint. It comes out casually in similes such as as when the smoke ascends to the sky from a city afar, set in an isle, which foes have compassed round in war, and all day long they struggle as hateful Ares bids. 
or again here. As when a woman upon the body falls of her husband, killed in battle before the city walls, she sees him down and listens how he gasps his life away and clings to the body, crying amid the foes. But they, beating her back and shoulders with butts of spears amain, pull her away to slavery to learn of toil and pain. Notice how different this is from the sack of Troy in Aedonid. This is a mere simile, the sort of thing that happens every day. The fall of Virgil's Troy is a catastrophe, the end of an epoch. An ancient city, empress of long ages, falls, quote, For Homer, it is all in the day's work. Beowulf strikes the same note. Once the king is dead, we know what is in store for us. That little island of happiness, like many another before it, and many another in the years that follow, is submerged and the great tide of the heroic age rolls over it. Quote, Laughter has left us with our Lord slain, and mirth and music. Many a spear shaft shall freeze our fingers in a frightened dawn, as our hand holds it. No harp's delight shall waken warriors, the wan raven keen for carrion, his call sending, shall utter to the eagle how he ate his fill. At war's banquet, the wolf shared it. Beowulf, verse 3020. Primary epic is great, but not with the greatness of the latter kind. In Homer, its greatness lies in the human and personal tragedy built up against this background of meaningless flux. It is all the more tragic because... There hangs over the heroic world a certain futility. And here I sit in Troy, says Achilles, in Priam, afflicting you and your children, not protecting Greece, not even winning glory, not called by any vocation to afflict Priam, but just doing it because that is the way things come about. We are in a different world here from Virgil's men's emota manet. There, the suffering has a meaning and is the price of a high resolve. Here, there is just the suffering. Perhaps this was in Goethe's mind when he said, the lesson of the Iliad is that on this earth we must enact hell. Only the style, the unwearying, unmoved, angelic speech of Homer makes it endurable. Without that, the Iliad would be a poem beside which the grimmest modern realism is child's play. Beowulf is a little different. In Homer, the background of accepted, matter-of-fact despair is, after all, a background. In Beowulf, that fundamental darkness comes out into the foreground and is partly embodied in the monsters. And against those monsters, the hero fights. No one in Homer had fought against the darkness. In the English poem, we have the characteristic theme of Northern mythology— the gods and men ranged in battle against the giants. To that extent, the poem is more cheerful at heart, though not on the surface, and has the first hint of the great subject. In this way, as in several others, it stands between the Iliad and Virgil, but it does not approach Virgil very closely. The monsters only partly embody the darkness. Their defeat, or its defeat in them, is not permanent or even long-lasting. Like every other primary epic, it leaves matters much as it found them. The heroic age is still going on at the end. It seems very bold to write a story where the backdrop or the force of nature or just the fact of it is the darkness or the as it's 
kind of said in Beowulf or being embodied by the monsters or in the Iliad, just the, uh, the grinding gears of history turn and what was important to this specific group of people gets lost to history. Somebody it's, it's very bold to write in that because the need to write a, uh, a story to have meaning for there to be a big meaning. Mm-hmm. It's just seems a lot of the books I've read, a lot of the stories I've consumed, they all have that meaning in them. But if the meaning is, is there, but the backdrop shows the, the gears of time or the, how does it, how does he say it? The heroic age, mm-hmm. the heroic age turns and it's just all lost. We call it nihilism now, but, but if you take it to its logical conclusion, we are taking for granted, I think, Western civilization. We are taking for granted that there is, there is such a thing as a, as a kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Whereas in that age, it was pitiless. It was, it was a pitiless horror that was the norm. You know, the the woman is is crying her eyes out, and you know there's this little mushroom of 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 safety in this the king's kingdom. And then the king is slain, and the city is sacked, and the women are hauled off to slavery. Right, mm-hmm. and they're like, yeah, that's just yep, that's just how it goes. Par for the course. Uh, Another day just, in the life. Yeah, that's you know that's Nothing normal. To look twice that's at. life. Mm-hmm. That's history. Yeah, until I die, and you know that's all it always always is. I mean, it's you know, bad luck to the it's, to the Trojans. That was some pretty bad luck, but you know, yeah, I'm, I mean, if I'm not Trojan, yeah, and this is this is normal. This is how it always goes. It wasn't the end of an age. It's not a big deal. So nothing is a big deal when when there is no there is no ideal of heaven. Hmm. Now I'm I'm adding the ideal of heaven part, but right. So why write in the first place? Why choose an individual story and pit it against this backdrop? I mean, if that's the worldview you actually have. What do you think? Well, I guess I think that no matter how philosophical you get, deep in your heart, you can't actually hold that worldview because it is inspiring to see someone rise up against this Mm. backdrop and still try to do something. And it is meaningful. It's stirring. It's moving. I mean, it it even, it makes me think of Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird when Scout asks, like, why he's going to do this if he knows that he's going to lose. And he says, well, it it means something. Even if you know you're going to lose, how you fight still matters. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm reminded of literary taste and how to form it. And, uh, there's the issue of style. So Lewis says right there at the end, right? He says, this is the most pitiless or, or the, the darkest story, but if it wasn't for his, and I'm going to, I'm going to swap out a word that Lewis used and I'm sure that he would object to it, but he says, if it wasn't for his style, only the style, the unwearying, unmoved, angelic speech of Homer makes it endurable. All right, but in Literary Taste and How to Form It, he asserts that you can't say a thing and mean something else. You can't say, oh, he almost said this, and this is what he really meant. Huh, no, yeah. he said exactly what he said, what he meant to say, it wasn't that he happened to accidentally pick the right word. It's that he had bad thinking or hadn't developed his thoughts, hadn't honed his ideas. You can only communicate your ideas as they are, as they exist. You cannot accidentally, you cannot articulate in your mind something beautiful, angelic, and sublime, and then communicate that using crass language. If you developed it, in the sublime in your head, then the words 
will either literally fail you, which is possible, but by and large, the words that you wind up using are the words you are using. They, they do communicate the idea as developed as you were capable of developing it. Hmm. Hmm. So I just express the idea, this idea right now in the previous sentence that I just uttered, okay? And I, and I stammered a bit while I was doing so because I hadn't fully developed the idea. But I did develop it to whatever extent I chose to spend the time on that. You know, I've, I've thought about that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah, yeah. I've really admired people who, in whatever situation, they decide to speak, and what they speak out is a fully-fledged idea, a fully-fledged thing that comes out of them. And you can tell there's a lot of thought. There's like a deep well of meaning behind it. And uh, I've always wanted that for myself because it's like, wow, that person has a complete grasp on what they're talking about. And it's not BS. They're not inflating it. They're not exaggerating it. They're not trying to sell you on it. They know it. They believe it. It's completely integrated. And so um, whatever they're talking about, there's no boasting in it. It's just coming out as truth. And uh, you hear that from people every once in a while about certain things. And it's really admirable. Well, it's, it's, it is admirable if literary taste and how to form it is true, which it seems true to me, then there's a bit of a wrinkle here. Does Homer inspire people? to be heroic and that begs the question how do you define what is heroic and Lewis goes on to assert that you know in a roundabout way we see that Homer's ideas or if you like the Greek ideas around heroism or what is heroic or what constitutes a hero differs apparently from the Beowulf ideal mm. author unknown mm-hmm he, he talks about Christian themes. So trying to imagine Beowulf without Christianity in the same way that you would, you know, quote unquote, historical Jesus. <laughs> so this is a curious question, but huh. the thing that lingers for me out of this chapter, well, he begs a question, I suppose. What, what constitutes the heroic subject? What makes an epic poem epic? Specifically a primary epic poem epic, though, because mm. we are going to get into a second category, which has different style and subject. You're right. You're right. So what is that? <clears throat> and the word epic and the word heroic and the word, the idea hero in the American psyche right now at this, you know, in this time is under siege by the Marxist uh, movement in the United States. So you have that as well. So the truly heroic male looks nothing like it did in the 1980s. And the truly heroic female behaves completely differently. You know, I was thinking about what you said about the Christianity part. And the story of Jesus is really, really a great tragic epic if you see it not as a from a christian's point of view and you don't believe in the miracles and the greatest miracle which was like the resurrection then it really is one of the most nihilistic stories you could tell of just of utter futility of, of a man who is doing good and helping people and is a great teacher and the system bears down on him and turns him into a martyr and that's the end of him and and then this icon of martyrdom is born if you wanted to think about the uh, after effects of Jesus still in that view as of a non-christian with no mir miracles it's and so 
I think uh, modern day, we have our tragic heroes uh, in the non-Christian sense, people who were martyred in one sense or another, and their uh, legacy is a bunch of angry people, a bunch of angry people who are out for blood, whereas... um, they're out for revenge. Out for revenge, whereas... If you're a Christian and you believe in the miracle of the resurrection, you join in the suffering and in his mission, which was to help and to sacrifice and to bring people into right relationship with God. And so it wasn't about all the suffering um, or it wasn't about becoming victorious over the Romans, because turns out Jesus was playing the long game. Yeah. It, because the uh, heroic age turns and the Romans no longer become top dogs. You know? The heroic age mm-hmm. ends. The heroic in, uh, age ends. And so, what got people through maybe part of a heroic age or through a heroic age was this worldly way of looking at things, maybe. But this Christian worldview has outlasted. I would say it was an infernal way, an infernal way of uh, living, Mm. like like God said, hell, right? It was hellish, hellacious, perhaps. And and the more you know about how the Romans behaved, the more of a living hell existence was. I think it's likely when God said the kingdom of God is ever on the increase. I think it's unlikely we'll ever slide back into that. It's not just my eschatology. I actually believe we'll never be capable of sliding back into that. The communists would have pulled it off by now. They couldn't do it because the Christian kingdom of God, consciousness of good and evil, right cared, right and wrong, too much. they were never able to stamp that out and erase it. People read the Gulag Archipelago and instead of shrugging and saying, well, life is life, right? Like they would have in the heroic mm, age. Yeah. They're outraged. They're, or they, they know the truth. And the truth has made them free. And if you were to lay down your life for your neighbor, suddenly... You're a hero. You're a hero. And as opposed to a weakling. Mm. Yeah. So is, is Christianity outlasted? The turning of the ages. I, I would argue it more than outlasted. I think it defeated. Hmm. It acquired germ warfare when everybody else was swinging clubs. Hmm. But another thing is like, why is it so compelling that the Iliad has stuck around for so long? You know, why did so many people go to all that trouble of preserving it? And why are the passionate few still passionate about it? Yeah. So what's in it that warrants somebody making it their life work, you know, a thousand years ago to make sure there was a copy? Well, people are rereading it and relishing it still. Mm. I mean, I relished the lines that we read. Yeah, they were amazing lines. And well, I've been thinking about circling all the way back to when Jared was talking about the words that make a full thought versus saying something counter to what the words might actually mean literally. I mean, this passage opened with uh, really vivid imagery of a wise man being killed and his blood um, mixed with wine, and that's how we get poets, right? And a big idea in poetry is that your words do mean more than just what they say. It's which words you put them next to, and it's the rhythm and the meter and how they cascade into one another. And if you put two words next to each other and they sound like a feeling, the words themselves don't necessarily have to make logical sense, mm. verbal sense, but snickersnack. they are evocative. Mm-hmm. You know what a snickersnack is. Yeah. But what did you just say? Yeah. So does Lewis... Yeah actually have something here when he says hold on let me find it again 
Only the style, the unwearying, unmoved, angelic speech of Homer makes it endurable. So is it possible that, because it's not crass language, but it is language that is dark and grisly and difficult, but the cadence of it is like the sea, and the sea is terrible, and the sea is beautiful. And it's precise, it's architectural, it's cathedral-like. And so are they saying something angelic, unmovable, and something terrible and Mm. horrific? Mm -hmm. Like, what did they use Stonehenge for? But we kept that around. There's this physical, these physical artifacts from the old world that are kept around just because they might have been terrible. Mm. They might have been part of some witchcraft, sorcery. They might not have been true. We don't know, but they are cathedral-like. They could have been terrible, but what they are is formidable. Formidable. Well, the poetry of of Homer is formidable, at least, and it has shaped our culture inescapably. Western civilization, like, we're still talking about it right now. We've been putting this off for some time, and I think this uh, relates to understanding the author a little bit. I want to make time during this recording to talk about Planet Narnia. So, Annalisa, we've already mentioned it earlier in the podcast. Yes. Can you give me a synopsis of Planet Narnia? Planet Narnia is a book all about the hypothesis that C.S. Lewis had a medieval idea in mind when he was writing the, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Narniad. And there are seven planets in the medieval school of thought and they could all enact an influence on the atmosphere and c.s lewis took that even further to say that all these planetary influences were different aspects of um, god they can they can teach us something about god and he always lamented that it doesn't actually describe how the heavens are aligned. It doesn't describe scientifically what's going on. And he thinks we threw the baby out with the bathwater when we not only threw that scientific description of how the universe works out, but also just the mythology of it, because he thinks it Mm. really helps to connect us with the heavens and heavenly thinking. Mm. And so... The heavenly bodies, the... You know, hearkening back to the the three wise men are able to foresee the coming of Christ mm-hmm. by looking at stars. Yes. And and he calls them heavenly bodies in his book, which Planet Narnia utilizes heavily, which is the discarded image. It's a textbook that points you to understanding the medieval worldview. So he, he wrote this book and published his book, and it's a doozy. I'll tell you, it's a doozy. I haven't made it all the way through the discarded image yet, but I have watched many professors break it down on YouTube. So no, I, I haven't done that. It's helpful. So this music of the spheres, it it talks about how Earth is at the center, and Lewis says it's it's not because Earth is so self-important. It's because we look out at space and we kind of see an ocean, something horizontal to be explored, uncharted territory. But what the medievals would have seen is they would have looked up and they were looking vertically through domes, through glass dome layers. And each level was a different planet and you get higher and higher and higher through these planets. And at the very top is the Empyrean. It's heaven. It is where the heavens are. And so earth is like in the basement. Like, if you could go more central, maybe you'd get to hell, right? So we're yeah, like... At the very, very we're center We're in the backwater. And we're just a little bit higher than that. <laughs> yes. So the music of the spheres, Lewis even plays with this in his... Um, Ransom Trilogy. Ransom Trilogy, yeah. yes, thank you. And he, he talks 
in that book about how Earth is the one planet that's fallen silent. It's no longer singing its song because the other planets are going in circles around the Earth and a circle is a symbol of perfection and they are doing the very best they can at, at being spherical, circular, and they are reflecting this glory back to their creator. And so their influence on Earth, each of the planets we... The medievals called Mars, um, you know, the the minor misfortune planet, and the Saturn is the the major misfortune planet. That's not completely encapsulative of what they are, because Earth is broken, Earth fell into sin, and so these good influences of these planets that are just set exactly where God the Creator wanted them to be, as they enter our atmosphere we can bend those and we can choose to kind of insert this malevolence into this influence. And so that's how in the Narniad, Michael Ward, the author of Planet Narnia Postulates, that's how we can have a book that shows us the Saturn representation of Aslan or the Jesus figure. And that is a good and a right thing. In fact, This chapter we're in in Preface to Paradise Lost reminded me of Saturn because Saturn is associated with death and decay and sorrow. But again, that's the distorted side. Lewis says someone born under the influence in Saturn is going to be, and I'm paraphrasing, either a moody and a malcontent or they're going to become a great contemplative. Someone who thinks very deeply, they ponder, and they ponder about things that matter. They don't. It's not they frivolous. Don't waste, it's not frivolous. They're mm. they're not picking straw arguments. So uh, like a, a, a King Solomon type. A King Solomon type, yes. Ecclesiastes King Solomon. Yes. Okay. And so this Saturn, this the sorrow, Saturnine. the Saturnine, mm. the the good portion of that is bringing us a godly sorrow of looking at the world and having God's heart for it, and seeing and feeling the brokenness that can lead us into the resurrection. We first have to mourn and repent before we can experience the full joy. And in its proper place, sorrow is a good and beautiful thing. There is no sin in it. So is Aslan, well, you know, one of them would be Jove, and that would probably be the one of the first ones, right? That Yes, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Okay, so we see... The Jove planet. The jovial spirit. Mm-hmm. You, you see that represented by Aslan is what you're asserting? By Aslan and the entire atmosphere. So, so Aslan does well. not equal the deity Jove. No, Aslan does not equal the deity Jove. And in fact, it you know, Jove is, Lewis calls Jove the king planet, but Jove is not a deity. Jove is an aspect, an aspect of... Aslan we can contemplate. Which is the kingly one. Which is the kingly one. I, I do it's see pomp, that, yeah. It's circumstance. Jove is the red planet, and red mm-hmm. appears in splashes all throughout this book. Yeah, in, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, the flag, it's the only time in the books the flag is gold and red. The flag is red in the book in several in several of the books. Um, it, this is the only book where they actually call Aslan the king. I never noticed that. But in other books, he's the son of the emperor over the sea. Mm. He is the great lion. Mm-hmm. He is not named king in any other book, mm. which I found interesting. So does each of the seven books then represent one of the planets? According to the theory of planet Narnia, which I am compelled to believe, yes. Can you give me another example besides Lion the Witch? Voyage of the Dawn Treader is Sol, the sun. And I think, Jim, this is what you were thinking of. Because everywhere else, the banner of the lion is red, but here it's a golden lion. Gold is the metal associated with the sun. Mm -hmm. The sun, what literally brings things to light. And so they encounter peril with gold in, in multiple places throughout the book, actually. And Aslan becomes clearer as they journey. Voyage of the Dawn Treader is really beautiful in how encounters with Aslan happen because they hear a voice, they have a feeling, 
when Eustace has his conversion experience, he's turned into a, a dragon at, at one point, and he meets Aslan. Aslan is in shadow, and he's not sure if he's even seen Aslan. And as he follows him further and further, Aslan becomes more and more clear. And then at the end, he's in this bright and golden country, and he's golden and he's glorious and he's larger than life. Um, but he didn't start out that way at the mm. beginning of their journey. Could I bring up a, another great example? Yeah. So in the silver chair, it's postulated that that represents the moon, Luna. And we get the word lunacy, being a lunatic, from the word Luna, which means moon. And in that book, it's all about the prince who has gone mad. Mm. And silver is yeah, is associated with the moon because it's that silvery uh, moonlight quality and mm -hmm. so the, the half of the adventure is either in the dark no more than half the adventure is either at night or in the dark exactly mm -hmm. it's it's a very dim book because it's dark they're either in a cave there is the very like climax of the book is puddle glum which is the most delightful character of the whole narnia mm -hmm. who's wrestling with this idea of is Narnia even real? Is Aslan real? Or is this all just made up in my mind? Am I just going mad? So it's this whole thing about madness. And then he decides like, no, it is real. And it was him striking out that broke the spell of, of madness. And so that book is all about going mad. And, and, and it's on purpose. It's on purpose. Well, the whole exchange with the owls. Where they, he's like, well, this is during, this is at night. People don't do stuff at night, and they all are like, "What? You're the weirdos." <laughs> right. Nighttime is the only time to do anything. When we're during days, when we're staying up mm -hmm. late. True. Who? True. Yeah, I, I, I do love, uh, I do love that one. So, this is an interesting assertion. So we're, we're, we're seeing him very appropriately propagating a very medieval worldview. And he's doing it by transporting children, English school children, to a medieval world. Hmm. That's and a good point. One of the first things I noticed about Aslan was how, how much he looked like. Uh, we see the lion, the lion, a golden lion, on a lot of iconography from medieval times like you know the king and house of this or that and they're always putting griffins and lions on things and i remember being struck by that and i mean this may speak to his art that was so good that i couldn't tell you why it felt so right and why it seemed so vibrant because it wasn't his uh, angelic language mm -hmm. it's really the atmosphere i'd say it's the the setting, the atmosphere, the not one part, uh, like Poe said, there's no delightful lines in epic poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing you can pull out and be like, oh, that's so good. So maybe tasty. maybe there is in uh, in Lewis's Narnia, but um, it's the take it as a whole mm. and you're left with this sense of of rightness, of wholesomeness, of what is right, what's what's good. Right. I found it very satisfying too, because we were we were rereading Narnia as well at this time, and yeah, it's like putting your finger on a part of what really does make it so. It really makes it sing. It does the sing the music of the spheres and just having such a brilliant mind steeped in these concepts and just not lecturing to you about them, but creating a story that's just rooted and watered by these ideas and they, they spring up and they spring out and you don't have to know a thing about it, right? No. None of us did. No. And it just no. speaks so deeply to the heart. But I would say looking at it through this lens, I had a lot of revelations while reading Narnia and I, I always weep when I read Narnia, but there were more places where I found myself weeping and thinking about Christ 
in new ways and his pursuit of us. I'm really just stunned by the masterful work. Mm, yeah, it really. So Planet Narnia, I came in pretty skeptical. Uh, there's a lot of junk literature about Lewis. Uh, yes. It's been vomited out by pop Christianity. This one, I am persuaded, has quite a bit of merit. We'll never really know until we talk to Lewis again. But I think it's likely. I think it's. I think it's likely. The ransom stuff really persuaded me. Yeah, because there's uh, the ransom trilogy, hmm. out of the silent planet, uh, Paralandra, and what's that the last? Hideous that hideous strength. They're wonderful books. And I thoroughly enjoyed reading them. And I actually read them after I read Planet, Planet Narnia. Narnia, which made it, I think, easier to read them. Because if you go in blind, they can be kind of a little strange because he actually puts, you know, Saturn into the book. Or he actually puts the goddess Venus into the book. That's who is in Paralandra. Like, that's, that's her. and so it comes off a bit preachy and a bit it's more on on the the, nose on the nose hitting you over the head with with it um but you know we're all those english children going into narnia not knowing what is going on and just being steeped in this wonderful atmosphere and then coming away with this adventure and going what was that yeah well what what, what, what was a witch that's all you need to know Mm. There's more there. Why, why, why do I cry when, when, when all of the other mice uh, start getting ready to chop off their tails for Reaper Cheap? Why am I crying? Mm. What's going on? Hold on. And as it relates to this issue, now shifting gears a little bit here, we are approaching this as Christians, devout Christians that want to be in the world, but we want to bring heaven to earth. All right, and Tolkien did fantastic work around this and Lewis did fantastic work around this mm-hmm. and people have dismissed the Narnia stories out of hand as being simpler that doesn't make them any less elegant but simpler mm-hmm. whereas one is an oak tree the other is a daisy and now we're looking at this saying maybe not maybe, not. maybe we're wrong and reading this a little book right here paradise lost stuff the point that i'm i suppose i'm trying to make and failing drastically is that 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 lewis is a creator that i want to emulate not by trying to create what he created i'm not interested in book eight there's not another planet there's not pluto you know mm-hmm. like we're not going to do that but instead when i approach lewis as a creator, I want to understand, I want to actually understand what he's up to and what he thinks. And for him to publish this book means that he thinks that there's something important about Paradise Lost and that he's spending a bunch of time on what is an epic and what an epic isn't. And what's, what's really revealing about this chapter for me and I, I want everybody to step in on this too. I want you guys to tell me what you think about this. I'm throwing, I'm positing this. The darkness that exists in existing poetry pre-Christian, is that a necessary element in the epic? Hmm. I'm coming into this, you know, with not a wealth of pre-thinking and mulling, but I think you need it to have that darkness, but maybe without the the hope at the end, because I'm thinking about, you know, why aren't there so many epics around now? So you're saying without the hope or with the hope? Without the hope. It seems to me that there shouldn't be the hope at the end. Because I think Christianity has posited the notion that there is a hope and it is posited so well all over the earth that you just can't tell that story very well anymore 
that something changed. There was a moment in time that changed it all that you just, it's, it's, it's no good. The formula has changed. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, Paradise Lost is certainly an epic that comes after Christ, but I haven't, I haven't read Paradise Lost, so I don't know if it is a bleak book or not. Well, I would say that primary epic, the point is made here that yes, the commonality is that you have the darkness and you have a sandcastle. We are the sandcastle that just gets relentlessly washed away. But at the very end, he hints at what's coming next. And we haven't, I don't recall the topics of the next chapters, but he says, Beowulf is more cheerful at heart, though not on the surface. And here we have the first hint of the capital great capital subject. And so it's a bridge point between early epic and later epic. Mm. So I think that a characteristic of early epic is, yeah, it's dark and it's hopeless. And here we're learning to fight against the darkness, even though that fight is hopeless. And it seems here that he's hinting that in later epics, we find the great subject. We find that hope that there is a power that can overcome it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think about post-apocalyptic is a very popular uh, genre of movie, whether it's about teens or about zombies or whether it's about, you know, Mad Max style, whatever. But even they can't get away from putting that hopeful twist at the end, even though this great sandcastle of technology and everybody living these wonderful lives with the the benefits of this technology and our lives are so great when it all falls down i can't think of a post-apocalyptic film that ends actually i think i can think of one you know there was one planet of the apes he he's a astronaut if i remember this correctly he's an astronaut that lands on a faraway planet and uh all his uh, crewmates are dead and he gets captured by these super intelligent apes that uh, treat him like a, uh, how he would treat an animal and they cage him, but he eventually learns their language and um, they release him and he's on the beach and he sees the torch of the Statue of Liberty peeking out of the sand and he realizes he wasn't on some faraway planet he was on earth but time had passed and the uh i think it ends there with that like hopelessness of the heroic age has turned <laughs> time has gone on and it is not very hopeful he's the loneliest man on earth because he's a human and they're all apes well i i'm sure there are more probably are depressing movies out there and people are, are, are saying no no there's no, this one there's this one, one that was one. Yeah. super depressing that... yeah but 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 i think your point still stands that they, they can't help themselves a lot a lot of them can't help yeah. themselves i'm sure they're yeah like you said they get to the end and they're like oh we need to do something i i also think it's interesting that the the thing that i disliked about european films because I would be like, well, I'm 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 an Anglophile and I'm interested in Italian films and interested in you know all these other films, and they always left me profoundly dissatisfied because they they always had these terrible endings. They they did they just had terrible endings most of the time. Like I go rent them. I remember I would go to the foreign section at Blockbuster Video back when it existed, and I'd rent them. And even the World War II films. I watched a World War II film specifically is in front of my mind where a bunch of Italians got together and the Italians made a World War II film about these American GIs that came in and they like tap danced and played baseball and did funny little pranks and killed Germans and they did they had all these adventures and then and yet they still failed miserably because at the end of the movie it was just totally depressing. What happened? There was a woman that was taken advantage of and dominated 
and basically was like a, some kind of was pimped out by the villain, and uh, she winds up killing herself or something. Oh, instead of being rescued, and and it was kind of pointless. Like her story arc meant nothing. Huh. I'm like, well, why did you take up time with this? And then the bad guy dies, but it wasn't like you did this to this girl, therefore you must die. Like there wasn't any of that. It was stupid. And it was a theme. Basically, every French film that I watched except one, which was called Amelie or something like that, or Emily or Emilie or something. Other than that one, every one that I had watched, like in quick succession, they were all the same. It was all super dumb. Um, and I, I eventually just sort of gave up on, I, I not sort of, I quit. Like I, I basically gave up on on the foreign film section. These were winning awards, and you know they had little stickers saying they were popular for whatever reason. And even the comedy was just terrible. And I, you know it might have been cultural, but in the end, it was like, here, mm. here's some unhappiness for you. Mm. But they didn't have the style that at least made it endurable. Yeah, they didn't have that. <laughs> yeah, Annalisa. Well, I was looking at planet Narnia again um, in the section of Saturn and the the last battle, spoiler alert for anyone who has not read the Chronicles oh, of Narnia, <laughs> but it's pointed out that contrary to what's usual for a children's book, every character that's introduced at the beginning of the last battle is dead by the end of the book, which is similar in plot but very different in feeling to some of the stories you guys were just describing. Mm -hmm. And I want to start out with reading a poem from Lewis. Who, he wrote The Planets, and you can kind of get a sense of the characteristics of the, the planets from here. And this is the Saturn section. Up far beyond Jupiter goes Saturn, silent in the seventh region, the skirts of the sky. Scant grows the light, sickly, uncertain, the sun's finger daunted with darkness. Distance hurts us and the vault severe of vast silence, where fancy fails us and fair language, and love leaves us and light fails us and Mars fails us, and the mirth of Jove is as tin tinkling. In tattered garment, weak with winters, he walks forever a weary way, wide round the heavens, stooped and stumbling, with staff groping the lord of lead. He is the last planet, old and ugly. His eye fathers pale pestilence, pain of envy, remorse, and murder. Melancholy drink for bane or blessing. Of bitter wisdom he pours for his people a perilous draught that the lip loves not. We leave all things to reach the rim of the round welkin, heaven's hermitage, high and lonely. And in the last battle, the children leave all things and they reach the rim of the round welkin, heaven's hermitage. In Planet Narnia, Michael Ward writes that Saturn no longer at this point is the sole presiding planet. The Donegality shifts. Saturn helps focus the imagination upon the beginning which is to be found in the end of life, like the prospect of being hanged, he wonderfully concentrates the mind. However, this is not Lewis's imaginative resting place. Rather, he goes beyond Saturn. Those who paradoxically embrace the major in fortune, they respond positively to Saturn's influence, and they find their beginning in their end. And the last chapter of the last battle is beautiful and so full of hope and this ugly saturnine influence is completely overcome by jove by the jovial spirit by aslan and by the hope of resurrection further up and further in further up and further in and i think that's where the hope Christianity brings makes a difference to story and how it's shaped the stories we tell today because it is all the Iliad without it. Mm. 
And Mm -hmm. this sorrow, it can point to something. It can lead to something. But it's easy to get stuck there. Amen. Take up your cross and carry it. And watch your burdens become easy and light. Lose your life to gain it. Some people are going to be listening to this podcast just because Annalisa's on it, so I'm just acknowledging that. Hi, Heather. How are you? <laughs> when am I going to get to the part where Annalisa speaks more? <laughs> Shut up, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, it's Jim. Yeah, yeah. it's all Jim. Right. It's Jim. <laughs>